sermon this morning is entitled, Adam, Where Are You? A number of weeks ago, I was reading a book entitled, Pastor, by William Willimon, a bishop in the United Methodist Church and past dean of the chapel at Duke University Divinity School. Seems to make sense that I might start my sermon today with that information being in the shadow of this nearby college of ours. Willimon was providing me pleasant company while I read the chapter on pastor as counselor. Then in the middle of the chapter, there was an interlude. He sometimes puts these subsections within chapters. It seems he has a lot to say, or like me, enjoys going off on tangents now and again. The interlude was titled, Augustine's Confessions as Word Made World. Word, W-O-R-D, Made World. It piqued my interest. Confessions had captured my interest when I read it. Written in the early fifth century, it was the first autobiography the world has ever known. And true to form of the many that have followed, it was a little off color. Confessions is a treatise of sorts to God. Augustine confesses, confesses that when he was about 15 years old, he ran wild with lust and enjoyed it. He said, the evil in me was foul, but I loved it. Now I suggest you not race off to read Confessions for its smut. Augustine was, after all, a bishop when he wrote it. And when it's read today, it's read as spiritual guidance. Now I was intrigued to see what Willimon had to say about Confessions. He said it could be read as Augustine's story of a lifelong struggle with and wonder at words. He says that for Augustine, words are a mechanism whereby he is able to make connections. Words enable his interior to be made exterior. Like Augustine and Willimon, I too like words. So I got caught up in thinking about words, their meaning, their use, and their power. Willimon then throws in this parenthetical comment by Karl Barth, a famous 20th century theologian who places a primary focus on words. He quotes Barth as saying, our relationship with God rests upon our being addressed Adam, where are you? So here I am. I'm reading the book, Pastor, speaking about confessions. And out of the blue, Karl Barth enters the scene with the words, Adam, where are you? I found it jarring. It stuck with me. It was like getting a song 
in your head. I think you've probably had that happen to you. You get a song or a tune in your head and it just won't go away. It seems to take up residence and you're forced to live with it by no choice of your own. While riding a bike, standing in the kitchen, taking a shower, there it is. Adam, where are you? The question had always confused me. When I first read Genesis, I found the question odd. Let me position you, if it's not completely in your head for memory. Genesis, chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, in the prior chapter of Genesis, God had made heaven and earth, day and night, all with just words. God made the sun and the moon and the creatures of the earth, but somehow God couldn't manage to find this fellow Adam in the garden. God had to call out to Adam, where are you? It seems to me a God who with just words can make heaven and earth should be able to find Adam in the garden. Scholars tell us that God asked this question to elicit a confession from Adam. Now perhaps that's the case exactly. But Willimon, when talking about biblical texts, asked us to be playful with the words, to be open to alternative interpretations. And that's a good thing because I can tell you for sure that the idea of a confession from Adam did not make the song in my head go away. If finding Adam in the garden was not the major task, then why the question? What if the question really was about Adam? What if God was asking Adam for the world's, not for the world's first confession, but for the world's first manifestation of self-reflection. What if the real question was something like, Adam, what are you up to? What are you doing? What if Adam was being asked to think, to ponder, to consider? After all, with the apple, came knowledge and wisdom. 
In Confessions, Augustine, and I quote, marvels that the people that, that people gaze upon the high mountains and examine the oceans and wonder at the stars in their courses, but pay no attention to themselves, the greatest of the world's mysteries. It seems what was true in the fifth century may well still be true today. Perhaps only details change. We're so busy getting to the next meeting, the next appointment, we often pay no attention to ourselves. We can get so lost in checking off the items on our to-do list. We pay little attention to ourselves. We, the greatest of the world's mystery. We can be so focused on winning the argument so very convinced that we are right and the other wrong, that we pay no attention to ourselves. We can be sad or feel lost and not even know it because we pay little self-reflective attention to ourselves. I remember when at seminary I took a course called Money Matters. I expected it would focus on the financial aspect of church administration. Instead, in large measure, it focused on the individual's relationship with money. The first assignment was to write a money autobiography. Mine was very short. We looked at the messages about money we received from our families, from the church, from our community. To what extent was our ego tied to how much money we had or didn't have? We even had to talk publicly about that very private thing called money. Now, I was feeling increasingly untethered by all of this. In addition, I had spent several days alone and I was feeling bad for myself because the next day, which would also be alone, was my birthday. I had taken myself out to dinner that evening, and on the way home, I hit a sheet of black ice and watched as I careened out of control headlong into a tree. Now some say, all things happen for a reason. It said there's something to be learned from every event. Sometimes we do not have a who to call to us to stop and take notice of what's happening in our lives. Sometimes it's a what that gets our attention and demands self-reflection. I believe the universe is always speaking to us, whether we pay attention or not. When was the last time a who or a what called to you? Who or what calls to you? Where are you? What are you doing? Who or what helps or encourages you to pay attention to yourself?
who were what? Ask you to consider just what it is that you're up to, to be self-reflective. Who or what helps you to stop long enough to consider the world's greatest mystery? If we're lucky, we have people in our lives who will call out to us, where are you? If we're lucky, we have people in our lives who will tell us, who will not let us careen through life unawares. If we need, we, we all need people looking over our shoulders as we live our lives. We need people willing to genuinely engage us, to connect with us. And we need to be willing to engage and to be engaged. Some 30 years or so ago, while I was an organization consultant, I saw a four-box model, and it was entitled The Four C's. It said that these four C's were, criti were critical types of relationship that we need if we are to stay, stay centered and to be our best. The boxes were labeled celebrate, clarify, comfort, and confront. Celebrate. We need people in our lives that we can go to when we want to celebrate. People who can be genuinely happy for us and our joys. Perhaps you go out to dinner with these folks. Perhaps you just play and party. We all need partiers in our lives, you know. My wife and I have sometimes changed the word celebrate to champagne. We need people in our lives to help us clarify. When we are confused, unsure, or in doubt, People who can be counted on to bring us new or different perspective. Sometimes we pay these people and call them therapists. We need people who can comfort us in times of distress. It seems mothers have a gene for this. The rest of us, I think, need to just learn how to do it. In the world of ministry, they call this being a non-anxious presence. Lastly, or firstly, depending on your personality style, we need people willing and able to confront us. Now, my brother is expert at this. If you have no one in your life, I can give you his number. This person is often a best friend. People who will not just stand by and watch us live our lives. People who love and care for us enough they're willing to rock the boat, risk discomfort, even rejection out of their care and concern for us. There was an important caveat associated with this four C's model. 
It said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. The basket may break. Divorce, move away, or die. Spread the wealth. Have different people in different categories in your life. Broaden your support base. Strikes me as brilliant suggestion. Often, we celebrate, clarify, comfort, and confront with words. Words like beliefs are not benign. They can have a very real impact in our lives. Words can open us up to others or close us off from them. They can invite others in or keep them at arm's length. We can welcome engagement, or we can shun it with words. Anyone who has teenagers know exactly what I mean. They seem to have only three or four possible responses, no matter what the question. Fine, nothing, I'll get to it. Or if they particularly feel put upon, get off my back. Now, these are not words that invite especially parents in. But then again, teenagers are not the only ones with such behavior. All too often when we arrive home, our answer is, fine, nothing special. Or sometimes we might be heard to say, we can talk about that another time. Words can welcome, or they can keep us at arm's distance. Willimon says, without the means to make connection with others, we are others unto ourselves. Augustine says, words are means toward community, toward communion. The means by which we make connection Start with intention. Do I want to be in communion with myself? Do I want to be connected with others? Do I believe I will be harmed by or benefited by connection with others? Do I fear genuine engagement? Or do I know I need it to survive? Words do reflect our intentions. Words can open us up to others or they can hold us heart. Words can invite deeper connection. Words are a means to community. Words of connection are not always nice, warm, and fuzzy words. They can be questioning, challenging, probing. Words intended to connect are a gift to both ourselves and to others. Words can be used to reinforce our egos or to help us get more in touch with, the, with who we genuinely are, to come to grips with what's true and real for us in our lives. Now, perhaps the task is that we need to become more comfortable with words, more self-reflective, 
more intentional about the words we use? Are they inviting words or distancing words? Do these words accurately reflect our intentions? Perhaps we need to listen more closely to the words of others. Can we hear their meaning, their intention? I call it listening to both the words and the music. I believe words are indeed important. Words help us to define our world. Words help us to create our world. Words are a means to community, a means to communion. Words are an integral part of our lives. How we use words makes a difference. How we respond to others' words makes a difference. It affects us all. How will you respond the next time you hear the question, Adam, where are you?